Hey, it's Rebecca. You can hear new episodes of No Limits on TuneIn four days before anywhere else. We are not, as humans, meant to just kind of float purposelessly around the world and just kind of, you know, take a bite out of this and throw it away and take a bite out of that and throw it. That's just not the way we're generally wired. And my mother knew that without even articulating it that way. Her thing was find something that you like and you're really good at, work hard at it, and leave behind more than you take away. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, growing up, she was told she had three strikes against her. She was black, she was a girl, and she was poor. Ursula Burns is a woman who's made history as the first African-American woman to head a Fortune 500 company. She is the former chairwoman and CEO of Xerox, now a board member of the company Uber. And thanks to the support of her single mother, she recognized the power of education. Ursula Burns, welcome to No Limits. I am happy to be here. (laughs) I like the title, No Limits. That means I can be my... Good old self. Well, that's exactly the person we want to talk to today. I, I'm i really glad that you're here. This is something that um, everybody behind the scenes at No Limits, sincerely, has been working really hard to get you here. And, and your story is, I think, both inspiring and informative. Mm-hmm. You're now the retired chairman and CEO of Xerox, recently joined the Uber board. You sit on a number of other boards like American Express, ExxonMobil, Nestle, you are the first African-American woman to lead an S&P 500 company. If someone had told you that as a kid, that that would be your future, what would you have thought of that? Well, I would have asked them, what does S&P mean? And what the heck is the significance of 500? So in my um, life, I was never exposed throughout my upbringing to corporate America. It wasn't as it is today where, where we speak about companies as if they are humans, that we speak about the leaders of companies, uh, you know, market caps. That in the 1960s and 70s, that was not the lingo that we were exposed to at all. So if you would have told me back then that there were these things, these big companies, and that I would be leading one, I would have been, uh, I would have doubted it significantly, not because... I thought that I would not be successful. It this does not. This was not even the path I thought I would head head down. Um, this was not the way I was exposed or brought up or even educated. I mean, uh, my educational institutions didn't speak about corporate America. They spoke about more about service group like teaching or nursing or being a nun or these kinds of things. So it's very, uh, you know, as I grew, I realized that there were these you know, entities that employed most of us, you know, that most of the things that I interacted with, the food that I ate or the products that I used, the clothes that I bought were made by these um, people who worked in corporations, but I didn't, I had no, absolutely zero exposure to it uh, when I was growing up. You grew up here in New York uh, in the projects. Yep. Lower East Side Manhattan in the Baruch Housing Projects. We started out in uh, tenement housing on Third Street and Avenue D. We started in Second Street and Avenue A, and then my mother moved to Third Street and Avenue D, and then we moved from Third Street and Avenue D to the projects, which was a massive step up from the tenement houses to the 
to the products projects. And it was a massive step up, step up primarily because the the tenements were so bad. It, it, they were unsafe. They were poorly cared for. Um, and uh, so when you move to the projects, there was more uh, oversight by the government, by the city government or the state government, whoever the entity was. And so it was a little bit better. But if you were to go to these two physical places, you would realize that we were moving from like a really bad place <laughs> to a bad place. It, it's not. It's not like. But a you really didn't bad know place. any different at the time. No, of course not. I mean, I what I saw, and even even television today um, gives you a, a view. You know, you can sit in your in your television in your room watching television or any other uh, digital device that can that you can get an, a perspective of what the world looked like. When I was growing up, you saw it on ABC, CBS, NBC, or the public station. That was it. It was extremely limited. So, you know, my world was pretty narrow. It was okay. It wasn't like I was sitting there, you know, totally in the boondocks, but it was definitely nothing like it is today. Your mother, single mother, you've talked about this in the past, had a huge influence on your life, believed that education was the thing. It was the thing that was going to make something better for you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was speaking earlier to a colleague of of mine right before I came here, um, and we were talking about the foundations of societies, and we were talking about this one, and how there were certain tenants that were pretty solid. Yes. Um, One was that if you worked hard, that... If you worked hard and were relatively just, you know, not a saint, that you can make progress, and that that progress would take some time, but but that you would make progress, and the expectation was that you'd and sometimes the expectation was was that you wouldn't always get it immediately. You may be working hard for your family, and that and so my mother definitely lived this uh, tenant, which is she had a world that was relatively small. It was herself. And her three children, she had a bigger world than that, but the primary world that she was concerned about was was that. And that she, her job was to um, allow us to participate in society at a higher level than she did. That, that Basically, there was no other, she didn't expect a lot. She didn't, you know, didn't complain about the fact that, well, she didn't get the, the, uh, the bigger apartment. There was no, nothing like that. Her thing was, I'm going to try to get justice, you know, as much as I could as much as I can, and then everything else is towards making um, the world more accessible, more possible for, my, for our kids. It is very different. The discourse today is very different often. It is about I deserve what I deserve. I deserve, um, you know, I'm alive, and so I deserve to go to Harvard, not to go to I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And I believe that there is, a, there, there is valid differentiation in, in the world. I mean, there is there are people who earn more than others. If you become a doctor, you will earn more than if you were a uh, janitor. Nothing wrong with janitors, nothing wrong with doctors, but you can't be a janitor, put in that level of work and say, my God, how can the doctors earn more money than I do? My mother definitely participated in society with this view that you have to actually, if you want more, you have to actually engage more deeply. You have to actually sacrifice a little bit more. And this is, it's a little challenging now because uh, we've, I, I don't know how to say it exactly, but this is getting confused. It's almost like, well, you know, if, if you have a lot 
um, and I don't have a lot, then you should give it to me. I deserve to have more. And I say you deserve to have access to more, but you don't deserve to have more unless you work hard to get it. Now, that sounds crazy because part of my – it sounds very selfish because I'm, I'm, I'm actually there already, right? So I'm the person who, who had the – I've made that – I've tra- crossed the transom. But you saw that it's possible. Yeah, and, and, I, and I knew that it wasn't going to be easy, and I did – but it wasn't this, this comparative thing at all. I wasn't like, oh, my God, I want, I want that car. I can't have that car, so I, you know, some, I have to complain about it. It was just that I was here, and I wanted to get one, one step further than here. And then when I got to that next further, that next step, I wanted to get one step further than there. And it was, you know, and that meant that I had to finish all 12 years of high school, all 12 years of school from, you know, first to all the way through high school. It meant that I was expected to go to college in a subject, in an area that was valuable to the world. You know, I love it. when Okay, we can all study art history. Great thing. And by the way, I have in my family art historians, amazing person, amazing but you can't expect to be an art historian and make the same amount of money as a chemical engineer. It's just not – that's not the valuing that society – and you can't therefore complain when you become an art historian and say, oh, my God, you know, I have all these college loans and I can't make a living. And you go, well, I, we could have told you that when you walked into the college right. door. We could have told you that the chances of you making as much as a chemical engineer out of college or a computer scientist out of college is relatively low. I do believe that you should have the right, the ability to earn a reasonable living, but this comparisons that we're getting into, and you know, how come I can't? How come I don't? You know, don't you think I deserve? It's it's coming without the uh, attending efforts. How much of that do you think has to do with access to accurate information? For example, knowing if if you went to college today and on day one of college, your advisor sat down with you and said. Uh, here's how much money you're spending. Here's how much money you're taking on in loans. Here are the degree programs that you could graduate with in four years and pay off those loans in two years or five years or whatever it is versus a sort of moral compass around these issues and a conversation around these issues. This is, uh, I'm smiling at you. You can't see, people on the radio can't see it because it is, so fundamental. It's such. It's a crazy conversation. You you said a word, you said a, a couple of words. Moral compass. That it is. So we've we've flipped totally right. So college is something that everybody should have access to. I think that that's reasonable. I don't believe that everybody who goes to college needs to go. <laughs> By I mean, my goodness, really. I mean. It, how many art historians do you need, right? I, I'm, I'm making, I'm speaking, picking on art historians, but I don't mean to. But you have a right to go to college, absolutely. Out of college comes something. What I think you walk into college for is to make your mind able to ingest and um, to ingest and manage more information. Mm-hmm. Learning how to learn. Learning how to learn, learning how to live, learning about things that you're highly interested in, hopefully getting a job. So if you walk into college on day one, or even better, you're 11th grader in high school. Yes. And you say, what I want to do is beca- I want to study religion. I want to study religion. And, I w- and you say, got it. Let's just, and we'll, I'm going to show you all of the great religion programs in the United States. 
and you say, okay, Harvard, no, I'll use a different one, MIT has a phenomenal religion program. And it cost $55,000 a year to go to MIT. I'm making that up. I think it, that's about it, right? Um, and you're going to graduate from MIT with a $220,000 in debt if you just paid it you know, right. without any help. The person who's sitting next to you, your parent, your guidance counselor, the high, sc- the high school guidance counselor, the college counselor should say to you, your earning power from a religion degree in the first five years of college is $50,000. You're going to end up with $200,000 of debt. You should be pretty prepared, and you should understand that the immediate payback, that, that your, your life in the short term is going to be a lot about paying back a lot of loans. Right. Therefore, college, college guidance counselor to student, I would not go to MIT to study religion. Mm. I'd go to Ohio State. Go to City College. It's a little bit. That's one. So the return, the investment is significantly lower. And think about whether or not you want to take a minor in something like, I don't know, construction work or welding or engineering or nursing or something. Because if what you th- if this moral discussion that I have the right to go to college and after I'm done with college, I have the right to have a job that earns enough to pay off the college loans is illogical when you study something that doesn't re- that's not in demand that um, that allows you to pay off the college loans. But it, it becomes this moral discussion. How, you know, we, we, you know, how dare all these kids are graduating with massive amount of loans and um, the schools are charging too much. I think that that's true. Both of those two things are true, but also students are making not great choices. They're not being counseled well. How did you end up pursuing the BS in mechanical engineering from Polytechnic Institute of New York and then ultimately the MS in mechanical engineering from Columbia? Luck. 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 This is not the best guidance counseling scheme in the world. Luck is not the way that you should pick your, your degree. So here is or your future. And the luck turned out to be really luck. I ended up liking what I ended up in, even though I didn't know what it was I was getting into. So you liked math. I liked when math. you were young. And so here's the the thing that benefited me was that that was beneficial to me was that I really liked math, and I I liked its difficulty, and I was curious enough about it to. You know, I would sit down and do problems. I mean, when I was in high school doing this math and physics, where you know I just couldn't understand it. You know, you kind of and they teach you, you just couldn't understand it. And I was yeah. I was one of these people who would actually figure out. You know, I, I it was like you well, worked through it. Yeah, how can I not understand this if somebody else could understand it? There's still some things that happen that way. My son talks to me about some stuff, and I'm like, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> but I happen to be good at this, and I took a test that they normally give called the PSATs, and I went to an all girl. Catholic High School, not too far from here on 56th Street and 1st Avenue. And the school was really strong, and it's still there, by the way, at just educating your, the students in the basics. Now, it's, now it has a you know, shop and a robots lab and everything. But when oh, I was cool. going there, it was pretty you know, religion, yeah, you know, writing, that kind of stuff. But they were really serious about um, you know, writing well, understanding the basics of living uh, well. And so you had to understand math because it was in the world everywhere. You had to understand basic science because it was in the world everywhere. And so I was very interested in that. 
took this PSAT test and did well enough, did well on it. And I did well enough on it um, differentially from the rest of the people in the school that the guidance counselor said, you know, you're pretty good at this. We should go look at some careers that could use this. And then I went before computers to the library and looked at this thing called the Barron's Book on things that could use math, and engineering was the thing. Actuarial science was the other. And I actually did, I went down to Pace University and to College of Insurance, which is all down by South Street Seaport area, and talked to people down there and realized that an actuary was the farthest thing from what I wanted to do. I mean, it was very boring (laughs) to me once I figured out what it was. Um, and then, so it was engineering, pretty clearly engineering from from there. And then, at the what was it? What was it about engineering that stood out to you at that time? Well, that it, was that it, was it was the earning power. The earning power. Yeah, it was really funny because when you read about engineering, you know, you don't. It doesn't give you, at least in the old days, it didn't give you a lot of enticing things. You know, I knew that there were two couple of things. One is that you could build things, and that you could actually study something and then build it and make it. Uh, you know, and see it work. Um, that was one thing. And there was a, a great place called um, something electric boat. Uh, that's in in Groton. Uh, General Dynamics electric boat. Yeah, it was a company that made submarines. That was there. And then the MTA was a big hire as well. They did, and they they didn't make the trains, but they actually had all of the infrastructure there. But anyway, the thing for me for school was that um, one was the earning power of uh, engineers. They were the top five jobs back then. And they still basically are today, right? Right. And they are easy to, easily employed people, more easily employed people. Um, the top job, uh, the top earning four-year degree job at the time was a uh, chemical engineer. So I decided I was going to be a chemical engineer. And the third was civil. I don't remember what the second was. And so I said, that's it. I'll just be a, a, a chemical engineer. But <laughs> do, you little... remember what the, do you remember what the average income was that yeah, they said? Yeah, yeah. So I remember this very well. $22,000 with a BS degree was what you made with as a, as a chemical engineer at the time. And, a, and an English, a teacher was like $11,000. It was just such a massive difference in earning, earning power. And a doctor was higher, but, then you, but it took like four times as long to get there. So there was a whole bunch of, uh, I had a, this paired comparison model that I would go through on what I wanted to do when I grew up. And one of them was that it had to be my mother was, you know, the sole earner of, for my family. My mother was, um, was amazing. My mother was uh, focused, and I called her maniacal about her kids. But, you know, when you're growing up, that's not necessarily great. You know, because the last thing you need is a maniacal mother. But um, were you scared of her? No. no were, you, were, were you afraid to let her down? I was definitely afraid to let her down. But there was not a lot of space to let her down. I mean, it wasn't like today where we have these, you know, you have to excel at everything. That was not, we never even had a thought of that. My mother's whole modus operandi was, we're going to give you access. You have to put energy into it. And she can't see a gap in energy. And then you'll do the best that you can. And that you know, so it was the trying do, hard part. It, it wasn't was necessarily the results. The results. And her, her discussions were never about money. I, I never had a conversation with my mother about earning anything. And her thing was that you have to uh, statement all the time. You have to give back in this world more than you take away. Period. End of discussion. She didn't think, and she didn't think about giving back more than you take away from a money perspective. Because if that were the case, we'd be in, we'd be doomed because we had no money. It was more about um, you know just creating mess in the world. If you create a mess in the world, 
you have to clean it up. We are not, as humans, meant to just kind of float purposeless, purposelessly around the world and just kind of, you know, take a bite out of this and throw it away and take a bite out of that and throw it. That's just not the way we're generally wired, thank God. Um, and my mother knew that without even articulating it that way. Her thing was find something that you like and you're really good at, work hard at it, and leave behind more than you take away. So engineering for me was, uh, I I found out that and engineers, and then I, you know, you look at the same book and they tell you what schools to go to. So I applied to those schools. I had no clue what to help. Some of them I had no clue where they were. You know, it's really funny. Today, you can either do a video tour or go see the school. Literally, I went to, I applied to schools that I had never been to the state that they had been, that they were in, you know, University of Wisconsin. Really? I mean, <laughs> I've just barely been to Wisconsin since then. Um, you know, but you just, you just kind of did it. You launched out and kind of started doing it. And the, the, the thing for me was that there were three schools, great schools in New York. I was like, whoa. And then there was a couple in Connecticut. I was like, you know, and you, I knew you can get to Connecticut by the train. So my thing was, you know, my mother had, my mother had done so much to just make a place for us that was comfortable and all that stuff like that. I didn't even think about going to live away, even though I applied to all these schools. So when I got into Brooklyn Poly, I said, oh, my God, I can get to that school. This is now I'm right up the street from it on a train by the F train. And literally, I lived right on Delancey Street. So I would walk to the F train and take. So it was great. I decided to go there because it was close. Wow. And because they had a program because while I was smart and I worked hard and all that stuff like that, I was way behind. So the the kids who were who came from the Bronx High or Brooklyn Tech or all these schools were way ahead of me. I mean, they they knew they had taken you know I had taken maybe pre pre calculus. They had taken three courses in calculus already. How did you think about that when you when when it dawns on you that you're behind? Does it make you think, okay, Ursula, just work harder and you're going to get there? Yeah, that, at yeah. that point, yeah. I mean, this, this is the thing that's so incredible to me about your wiring, mm. um, because it strikes me, and this is not I, I'm not I've never studied psychology or anything like that, but it sounds like the wiring of a winner. Mm. And and it's kind of like a you're going to find a way. There is literally nothing that's going to stop in front of you that's going to deter you. I think that as I got older, I became less like that than I was back back then. And then I and then I became more like it again. And I'm gonna. Uh, it's a, it is really interesting. The you said something that's I never thought about. Um, I never thought about the fact that. Oh my God, you're way behind. So maybe you shouldn't go there. Right. In this in this context, I never in educate. I, I said, okay, I guess. Got to catch up. Yeah. If you're if you're if they can do it, and it was never even yes. this comparative thing. Yes. It was like they can do it. If, so if, if it's humanly possible, possible to do this, I will find. A I way will to find do a way it. to do it, and it's and it's just going to take a little bit of effort. Part of that is because up until that point, effort was reinforced mm. continually by good outcomes. Right. Yes. So, Yes. I, I don't believe that I have this this um, unique gene. I hap- I believe that I happen to have a great set of experiences and people around me who rewarded effort yes. with patience and yep and and then it came out at the end okay. There are times and so that when I was young I was crazy. My mother used to say wrong and strong, which what she meant was that I had an opinion about everything. I thought it was always right because hey, you know, whenever I had an opinion people encouraged me to talk about it. 
And a lot of times it was right. So I just kind of went with it, ran with yes. it, right? So she said, Ma, Max, you're oftentimes uh, wrong, but you're always strong. <laughs> with it. Uh, but then there's a, t- I think that uh, this happened to me, that you get, you run up against a set of different uh, teachers. And those teachers in your life, if they, if they come at the wrong time and if they come in a the crowd, they will actually teach you just the opposite. Mm-hmm. Stand back because I, the chances of you climbing this mountain are really, really limited. Yes. Why try? And what happens in the beginning, what happened in my beginning is I happened to be around a bunch of people. My mother, simple, high school educated, very smart, hardworking, entrepreneurial, kind of cool woman. My aunt, my aunt, my brother, my sister, who were all, yeah, 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 that's, you know. What, the worst that can possibly happen is that we start all over again and try again. Imagine growing up in an environment where all of your, because I could have been just so different if all of the things that you branch out on, you are told, why the hell are you doing that? There's no chance. There's no yes. chance. There's no chance. So I don't think it's this kind of only wiring. It is wiring, but it's a reinforced mm-hmm. wiring. In the middle of your life, particularly right after college when you enter work, or in college in the last couple of years, the system, particularly for women, is extremely negative. It's, it's not vocal. They're not yelling at you to stop, but the system is built not for you. Explain that because so you went, uh, you did an internship at Xerox yeah. before you graduated from Columbia, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're getting your master's. You do this internship. From there, you end up getting hired full-time. Correct. So where along the way is the system really hitting you in that way? So I think that in school, graduate, senior year in college and graduate school is the first time that you see, that I saw, um, a, a, a set of circumstances that made it seem that men had it, particularly male engineers, had a more natural easier time at it than women engineers and and i mean they get the same books so it's not like there's some like they give you different <laughs> the books to see the, the, answer, the one with all the answers in it but just the, just the recruiters everything about the system is more for guys it was all for guys guys came and interviewed they presented things in a very masculine very like confrontational war you know a lot of discussions about this kind of thing about this kind of uh, these sensibilities that are not necessarily your sensibilities, you know, maybe some women, but not I wasn't that way. And this is one of the reasons why Xerox ended up to be so amazing. Um, you, everything is geared. The natural state of things is not a female state at all. But it's not necessarily a male state. You know what I'm saying? They don't make a distinction by saying men good. But it is so men, it's so naturally male that they don't even see it sometimes. I mean, they don't even, for example, never in my life did we have a discussion about family at work. It, it was, you know, so you, I had summer jobs at Western Electric. I had summer, you know, family. What, what, why, why would you ever discuss that? Um, child care, I mean, just think about what you have to do with child care. And the natural set of assumptions are and in the conversations fairly naturally as well, that, yeah, there's going to be some need for you at some point to go off and have a baby, and you're going to have to take a, a leave from work. So it's you, you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to deal with that. Right. And it's just a natural 
conversation. So when you have a conversation with a guy, it's not that. He's like, yeah. Yeah, let's start working and then, you know, we're going to send you to X. We're going to send you to Y. We're going to send you to Z. And there's no real natural place to rest your brain. You have to figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the first time that, that there is seems to be a set of systems where that there's nothing nothing for you to grab onto. So you... You try to find places where they are. And so women, a lot of women engineers go to marketing or personnel or these areas that are a little bit easier to kind of adjust your life around. Well, and and I think that's an interesting point because you worked your way up inside of Xerox. You literally climbed the ranks of Xerox, get named CEO and eventually chairman and CEO. And when I look at um, other women in the workforce – there's sort of this acknowledgement that there is, while there are many, many ways to get to CEO, there is this kind of path and there are certain jobs that you must take and there are other jobs that if you're on that path, you're not necessarily going to get to CEO. Correct. Did you, did somebody lay that out for you? No, no, but it was, that that was something that was, by the time I got uh, close enough to realize that, so not my first job, my second job, or third job, but, you know, after about nine to ten years in the company, it was clear that if you stayed in this path... What are some... Can, be, uh, can you be specific Oh, very, here? very specific, yeah. If you stayed in HR, the chances of you running the company are nearly zero. If you went to... If you stayed in marketing, pure marketing, the chances of you running the company are, are very difficult. If you stayed in pure research... So, if you stayed in IT... By the way, make sure that you – I say this a lot as well. So there is only one CEO at a time. There are many outstanding jobs. Being the head of HR, the CHR, the chief human resource officer, great, great, great job. They, I don't believe that most human resource executives are aspiring to be the, the CEO of the company. They're aspiring to be the CHRO. Finance is another one. They're not aspiring to be the – they want to be the CFO. So it's not – the fact that there's not a path for many jobs to that job doesn't make is expected. It doesn't make any of those jobs not good, not good or not desirable. Not desirable. But it's it, just that women are women overpopulate in certain areas. They they major in certain areas. HR is one. Um, marketing and communications is another one. Um, we had a time when we had some great IT executives that were women, but there and it's generally the softer side. And we, there was a huge amount of time when I was growing up. So I'm in work now, and, and so I'm growing up in the work environment where, you know, um, all of the women would say, but, you know, there's no women in leadership. And you look at all of the women, they were in HR, literally HR and marketing. And the, the response is, yeah, very rarely does a person who's in HR get the chops, experience, um, credibility to actually cross over and run the company because they you got to be able to do that and HR and understand the operations and out there you have to kind of know something about the value chain and the supply chain. There's a lot of other things you have to know. And it's easy to learn those things if you're in marketing. I'm sorry, if you're in engineering or if you're in sales or general management somehow. So yeah, otherwise, because I would, it, I have a great HR. He's not, I was, I'm no longer there, but the guy who runs HR for Xerox, whose name I won't say, he's phenomenal. But he's not going to run Xerox. You know, he may, he, he may kind of, be like an oddity, but this is not the natural path. But and so I don't mind that. That's kind of it's kind of like you can't become a PhD until you get your BS. Right. You can't run the company until you get some broader set of experiences. The problem it, with it is that the way that education, uh, 
primary, secondary, post-secondary, the way that education systems, job growth systems, job designs, um, uh, external forces define success for women and for men, women tend towards this side of the spectrum, which is the softer skills, and therefore they'll never run together. They'll never run the place. You you have said before, basically, that that engineering degree was key. Everything. So if it's, Everything. If it starts there, and, and if it's important to see more women in CEO roles, and I believe you think that that's the case, what needs to happen? What yeah. needs to change? How do we even get there? For tech companies... Um, you know, it's engineering for other companies. It could be something else. Sure. If you're in media, it's going to be whatever the media um, major is, et cetera. I don't think you need to get an engineering degree to exceed in media. but uh, <laughs> It would make you a really, really smart, smart media, media executive. Person. I think that the entire conversation has to – by the way, and this is starting, which is good – has to change. And it's starting first by it, there being a conversation. So every – you're doing no limits with Rebecca Jarvis, <laughs> and we're sitting here with Ursula Burns, and we're spending probably, I would say, fifty percent of this conversation is going to be on STEM or something like that. How do that is a, that's a big step in the right direction. It's a serious problem if we don't get broader broader participation, diverse, broader, deeper, diverse participation global in STEM, then the world is going to struggle. Forget about. The problems that the world, think about what we have to do. We have to feed 7 to 10 billion people. We have to get them water that's potable and clean. We have to be able to move them around in some kind of reasonably efficient way. We, you have to have heat and cooling. There's, you know, without it, you, you go. Um, just keep going. You have to have medicine that actually, uh, you have to have information that can kind of move really fast. There is not one thing that I mentioned in all of the things that I just mentioned, not one, that you can solve without a good STEM team around it. By the way, you also need communications people. And but and so I'm not saying that we don't need to do those sure. things. It's literally, I mean, my daughter is going to be when my other, my niece, they're, they're there, great at it. And I thank God because I love that side as well. What happened, the problem is that we were, that's all we were producing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if you're a woman, that's all we were producing. The problem is that most of the challenge in the world, most of the opportunities to make it a better place, a more evenly uh, aligned place around the world, are science problems, math problems, they're technical problems. But it, it this is and not nobody just... wants to, nobody wants to, it's kind of like, they say to me, it's hard. And I'm like, well, for me, writing a friggin' story, a good story, is more than hard. It's almost impossible. So this idea that the insurmountable must be possible because you've seen it in other areas. It's, it's you know, it, a lot of it is uh, neglect for a long time. Yeah. And, and that neglect has gone to what I call now culture very hard, right? Neglect mm. to culture is bad, right? So if we now have a culture, a language set, a set of practices, um, a set of visual images that part of our culture that says you don't even have to say a word you go over here and you go over there yeah so if you're a man if you're male and you go over here and if you're not you go over there and if you're if you're tall and black you go over here yeah if you're tall and blonde you go over here there's this there's these things 
By the way, that happens. That's the way that the world is organized. Part of what I think happens with good diversity, particularly gender diversity, it pulls on the comfort levels of both sides to actually come toward the middle. Yeah. And to actually be significantly more inclusive, to be a little bit more understanding, to design better solutions. Because I tell you, if all you do is design a solution for this type of thing, right. then the other the people who's not there are going to feel as though it's exclusive, right? That they are excluded. I think you really lay it out in a way that resonates with me because I think a lot about this myself. Yeah. So if you can change, hmm. let's say, three things that you wave a wand right now and it's done. Mm-hmm. What are those three things? One is outstanding primary schools. I, but I don't think that there has ever been an experiment run where the and by the way, I, I'm almost, I'm six sigma positive on this, where the outcome is anything but the following. If you don't have a mental defect of some sort, some um, fundamental processing gap, you start with a kid young, one, two, younger if you have the get and form some good habits around them read to them have them literally touch and play with books give them implements and have them start to physically um play with them and understand their capabilities and what these things you start there and you just keep educating them i don't there is not an experiment that would show that the that the brain development doesn't um Max, continue mm-hmm. to maximize. First, we need great schools. We do not have great schools. Period. End of discussion. Number two, I think that we've come around as a nation. I started and then kind of got off this topic earlier, where it's an important thing that we actually think about what is the purpose of this country? What are we doing here? What are we doing? I used to think it was, I think I understood it, but a lot of the models that I would have, that I thought I understood are now being smashed. So I'll give you a model that I'm really, you know, capitalism. Cap- that's what the, I like capitalism. I think it's pretty cool. By the way, I know that there are some really big problems with it. Let's get about to fixing that. But we are not a society where socialism reigns, right, except for in education, basic health, and safety. Everybody should have basic access to these things, Right. But everything else, I mean, yeah, if you do a, if you create a great thing, you should be able to sell it for more money than if you created a bad thing. I get, I mean, that's pretty basic. That I, in, the, in my time as CEO and today, we have educated a lot of the population to hate companies. And to think about the, it's kind How of the do you opposite. think we got here to hating companies? I think that we, we got here because of some really bad things. I the mean, Great Recession. The recession helped, hurt. Help this mm-hmm. bad argument. Banking really did a, a, a bad job at certain things. I mean, in the wealth created in in this whole financial area that was oft was in some cases associated with creation of nothing at all. They didn't make anything. Was was bad, and that drove this big wedge into people. You know, who could you could look at quote unquote Wall Street, but it was more than Wall Street. I mean it was literally a massive amount of wealth with no associated value to it. You know, we're bundling mortgages, dividing them up into twelve and then selling the twelve pieces. It doesn't it's not totally clear to me what, what you made there, right? Um so I think that there was some bad example and by the way, companies who make things are also bad. So and the, all that bad stuff happened during a time where we were going through a big financial recession and where media 
became a, a almost a popularist show. Mm-hmm. It became in order to, to to keep the news on, you had to find something really hot to talk about, and so. You made stuff up, and then we, you know, so the, everything is kind of like the perfect storm of bad things, right? You know, the economy goes crazy, so on. But we have to, as a country, figure out, okay, what are, what is it that we do for a living? What is what is our, you know, we are, com- you know, we say we're a country of in- immigrants. Well, I don't think people like them either anymore. Now, I, I, I can't understand that at all because, okay, we're con- we're capitalists. Well, you know, I don't know about that really. We are um, we are entrepreneurial. Well, you know, these guys own too much of the stuff. They're too this. Everything is kind. Of, we have a language. It's called English. Now you should learn it. As you don't have to know it when you walk in. We have a currency. It's called a dollar. There's some things that make us who we are, and all of them are being destabilized. Some of them should. Some of them shouldn't. But we need leadership to actually help us sort our way through to an end. Here, we don't have that at all. I mean. In my adult voting life, every president has gotten successively worse at doing the following, leading. They have been, we have some, we've had some good managers, presidential managers. We need leadership here because, the you know, you can talk about what we can't do very easily. I can, you know, I will never run the mile in whatever the hell it is, four minutes. Easy to talk about what you can't do. What we have to start talking about is what we can and will do. What we're willing to trade off, what's possible. And, and uh, there was a president before who I actually happened to like, and it wasn't the previous one who I liked a lot. Um, and he said, you know, when you wake up and realize that, that um, you have a lot of enemies, it's probably a good time to start making friends. I'm, I'm saying it incorrectly, but – and it, it was in some speech. And I said, that is a really insightful statement, right? So let's just try to figure out a way to start making friends. Now, we – so trade is another one that's crazy. Trade. People actually, we're talking about trade as if it's a crime. Now, we have to fix things about trade. Don't get me wrong. But we are 320 million people in this little country. Take off half of them because they're either indigent, too young, or too old to actually do commerce. That's 160 million people. We can't, if we, we can't make enough, we can't buy enough stuff to keep an economy of our size going by just selling to 160 million people. There are 10 billion, pretty, pretty soon 10 billion people out there. I think we should be making some great stuff with good um, protections, you know, good, fair, and we should be selling it all over the place. That's Okay. It. So when are you going to run for public office? Yeah. <laughs> she just rolled her eyes. Yeah, so here, public office is... Um, Highly uninteresting to me for a couple of reasons. People who hold public office have the responsibility to be fairly balanced in their thinking. And I think that I'm, people love me because I'm actually not very balanced in my thinking. I think this because my mother's had this thing wrong and strong. Yes. And I think that there's, a, there's an element of me that kind of gets wrapped around something and just says it ain't working. But I'm here to try to make sure that I have to make sure that public officials have to make sure that they, even the people who didn't vote for them, are governed correctly, and that, I, that's the responsibility. And by the way, this is something done very badly right now in this. I mean, we we literally talk in this current right now in this country, like the people who didn't vote for the person who's the winner are like foreign attackers. 
They're, they're your people. They're your kids. I mean, you got to govern them, too. They just didn't agree with you. Okay. You got to love them. So I think I'm not necessarily good at that. And at least I realize right now that maybe uh, 10 years from now, five years from now, but right now I, I actually relish the point, the fact that I have an opinion that is different than the other guys and I'm going to fight to fight to the end. That's not what a public official should do. What's been the toughest lesson for you along the way? That some things take time. The biggest lesson is that things take time. And I am things, everything. The because you wanted up, to be CEO before you were or you because wanted I want I want goodness before I, goodness. I get I'm I was raised Catholic. I'm still Catholic. And by a mother who was very Catholic. And I went to a Catholic school for 12 years. And I actually do believe that God doesn't like ugly, that you are that you can go to hell. You know, that there is a punishment for bad things. And I I am just so impatient around bad things happening. It's just, and, I, you know, shooting 59 people and injuring. We need gun control. I, I understand all this stuff that we had with the founding fathers. I get it. Let me tell you what, the world has changed. We we cannot live with the with the... This inflexibility that we have right now around some dogma that doesn't apply anymore, and I'm very worried about. And so I'm, I'm, I get so concerned. You know, I, I would, I ball up in my house sometimes, literally, just with despair and worry about how, you know, we have kids who don't know how to read. We have people who don't eat food. We have people, we actually have a debate in this country about whether or not people should get good health care. I understand you're going to talk about how you pay for it. When you, when you are sick, we are in America. This is not, you know, we have people who don't eat. This is stuff that we have people who literally go to listen to a concert and some crazy guy has 30 guns. We, really? Semi-automatic. I guarantee you the founding fathers did not think about machine guns when they were talking about, you know, so we should be able to fix this. We should be able to fix this. But we have we've calcified on all these sides. Yeah. And it seems to me we have a debt. We have a funding problem for science right now in this country. We have a you know, we literally have Medicaid, Medicare, Social Securities. That's going to literally continue. If we don't do something, if we don't address the problem, it's going to eat us alive. I understand that we don't want to take X and we're going to do what, but just saying what we're not going to do is not moving the ball forward at all. We should be better at this. I mean, it's just the, yes. it's the oddest thing. I just sit around and I, I get invited to all these things and we work hard and, and then you get to, well, they're never going to do this because it won't work. I said, okay, so here's the way it works then. We should all sit back and just let it happen because essentially that's what we're doing now. Let's just sit back and let it happen. Right? We, we're not educating our kids well. We are not investing in infrastructure almost at all, which is another thought that you say to yourself, really? Is this a debate? How can this be a debate? It's kind of like saying I'm going to live in my house and I'm never... Warren Buffett said something really great in a book or something I read, I don't know, maybe a podcast, where he said, you wake up in the morning, you're 16, you get a car, and they tell you this is the only car you're going to have for your entire life. What are you going to do with that car? Take care of it, right? Right. That's what that's our bodies. And he was he said so that mm-hmm. so think about this, right? Our bodies, our country, country our everything. 
what are we doing here? We Our planet? This is not a rental. This is not a rental. <laughs> We're not going to be able to trade up. right? You, and, and So I just think it's, I get really, really sometimes immobilized. Well, I, can tell, I can tell that you are literally thinking constantly. Yeah, and this is and, part of the problem. This is not the best thing. <laughs> what you're supposed to do is take thinking, a nap. Stop thinking, Ursula. Yeah. I'm going to try to. Okay. Um, no, I don't want you to stop thinking. Um, I would like to know, um, first of all, so on the Uber board, uh-huh. now that you are sitting on the Uber board and we just, um, we did an interview with Bozema St. John about her role at, at Uber. Mm-hmm. What what are you going to recommend that company does? Oh. What's one thing you recommend Uber, one change you think Uber needs to make right oh, away? I'm not going to talk about change. I'll talk about general things because I literally I'm five minutes into Uber. So here's the way I think about Uber, but any company like this. This is actually really cool. Think about what happened in Uber. Think about what they do, what we do. I now use this. I use this thing. I believe if I join the board, I use it. And when I, I was in London the other day, and, and my my sister is, and her and some girlfriends are coming over, and they were panic-stricken because they heard that Uber was not going to... And they were like, oh, my God, how am I going to get from the airport? Because if you use the black cabs, it's too expensive. This has become necessary. You know, it's gone. It's now it's not a luxury anymore. It's like, okay, where's my other things as well? I'm sure Lyft and all these other guys. So here's what I think my job is for Uber. That great solution or quote unquote luxury that has moved to a necessity has to continue to be available in the right way to citizens in the world. My job as a board member is to make sure that we have the governance processes, the staffing model, the funding model the oversight, the grace to allow the license to operate, the license to operate, meaning that we, which we have to earn so that we can actually continue to be, have this great thing that has now become, quote, unquote, a necessity to people around the world. There's a lot to do, I'm sure. By the way, there's a lot to do in every company I'm on the board on, right? So it's, it's all about, this is a good thing. We have to have great employees. You have to have... Literally, you have to work well in the communities that you're in. You have to have reasonably good governance. You have to be reasonably transparent. It's pretty basic. And good technologies. Before you go, what's the worst advice you've been given in your career? Um, hmm, I've been given lots of bad advice. The, the worst advice that I've been given is to shut up. To shut up. Just, Who gave you that advice? Oh, I get it all the time. Ursula, it would be so much easier if you just Wi-Fi it. I get this a lot. Wi-Fi it. You know, you're not going to benefit from this. Oh, yeah, I get it. Why fight it? And I, and part, and I, by the way, I sometimes take it for 30 seconds. You know, I go home and sleep on it. And then I just almost can't help myself, right? The next day you go in and the same topic and then you you literally say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to, I'm just going to let it go. And then you walk in and you see it again and you, you, it's almost impossible to let it go, right? I get, I get that a lot. Ursula, there's no need for you to, why, why? Have you ever regretted this? fighting it? Have you ever, and not fighting it, have you ever regretted not shutting up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I'm not always right. I'm not always well-informed. My timing is not always great. So, yeah, I, I regret it. I regret it often. But, but, you still, but you still forge ahead. I tell you what. On average, it's better to open your mouth than to keep your mouth shut. On average. For sure. That I'm totally convinced of. Second thing. On average... People are waiting for somebody to open their mouth. And if all it does is catalyzes other people to open their mouths, that's good. 
people wait. I'm amazed as well. This is a big thing about about business. I say this to my teams all the time. I'm the CEO, but if you guys don't help me be the CEO, if you're not the CEO in this when you walk into this room, if you're not the CEO with me, I don't need you in this room, right? Because I do, do I know everything? Far from it. And I don't mean about legal. I have a great general counsel. I have a great, I want you to be great at that. I'm a really great engineer. But when you walk in the room, you shed all of that. We all have to kind of throw it in there, mix it all up, and come out with something that we live with. So talking, speaking up is how you get credibility, how you, how you, how you become a real human is to actually have opinions. By the way, those opinions should be well-informed and, and should continue to grow and learn. Uh, one last thing, and then I have to definitely go. There was a president, when I first started to get to listen to presidents, the president ended his term, and he said, and it's interesting how I, could have to, I could, don't even have to think, I can say he, right? Because this is another fun. He said, <laughs> all of the above. All of the above. Said They asked him, well, what would you have changed in your presidency? And the guy said, nothing. And I said, oh, my God, that he was a bad president. Because, wow, if that statement of if you would have, if you knew now, then what you know now applies so many times in life, right? So, and that's called learning. That's called learning, right? So that, and if what you tell me is that you've looked back over these last four or eight years and there is nothing that you would have done differently, then you are either God or you literally learned nothing. So from day one to day, whatever, eight, you, you, you operated under the same. You never evolved. Never evolved. How dare, how dare that be a good answer? That, that answer has to be a bad answer. The answer has to be, oh, my God, I can think of 10 things. If I would have known, you know, so I could think of 10 things. Now, are there, and another question they asked, many regrets? I said, oh, yeah, I have regrets, a lot of regrets. Very few of my regrets are about action. Most of my regrets are about inaction. Right. And so I just I, you know, now I'm getting to be like a like a preacher. But I, I think that, that are you going to become a preacher? No, 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 okay. no, I'm not too I'm not good enough at words to do that either. Um, Rebecca, you are absolutely a phenomenal interviewer. You're an amazing interview, Ursula. I really enjoyed this Thank conversation. And you. I seriously if 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 we didn't have to say goodbye, I would continue having it with you for hours because I, I really think that you're on to a lot of things. And I really enjoy you sharing your back. story here. Please do. I will. Ursula Burns, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Jenny Patinkin, who is nominated by No Limits listener Rachel Rischel. So Jenny Patinkin is a beauty expert. She's a makeup artist. She has a makeup brush brand. She's a founder and the author of Lazy Perfection, The Art of Looking Great Without Really Trying. And her story is fascinating because she's a mom of three, three teenage daughters in Chicago, She wears many hats. She also appears regularly on network TV, digital media channels. She educates people about beauty and makeup. And the thing about Jenny is that she decided at 40 years old with three daughters that she was going to go out and do it. She was going to found her business. She says the major turning point in her career was landing a book deal. 
becoming an author. She says that that has opened up so many doors and new opportunities and says that more than ever before, retailers and brands are now contacting her to collaborate on projects and carry her book and her makeup brush line, including every single Neiman Marcus store. Way to go, Jenny. Her game-changing decision, Jenny says she was a former stay-at-home mom when she decided to launch her beauty business at the age of 40, as we said. And she says that even though it was a later start, it gave her what she considered an entrepreneurial superpower. She could take risks and handle rejection because she knew herself and she had faith in her abilities after having raised three daughters. Instead of being terrified to try or feeling paralyzed by hearing no, she kept pushing herself to make cold calls and find opportunities. She says that her life experience totally outweighed her lack of business experience. If she could go back and give herself advice, she says she would advise herself to take every meeting, to look for mentors and peers who can provide perspective and insight, and to find opportunities for more business guidance. Jenny, we absolutely love your story. Congratulations. I think for anyone out there who is thinking of a second act or thinking of doing something, you know, you might be a mom, maybe you're thinking about leaving a job or thinking about starting something a little bit later in life, Jenny is your prize. Jenny is the one you should think about because she did it and she's been successful at doing it. So congratulations, Jenny, on being our No Limits Entrepreneur this week. I love your entrepreneurial spirit. And Rachel, thank you so much for the awesome nomination. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an entrepreneur, send your nominations to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. That is No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I'm loving reading all of these. I'm loving hearing hearing from all of you. I love these emails, so keep them coming. And also, if you like what you heard, don't forget you can subscribe and leave us a review. It really does mean so, so much when you leave those reviews. And as always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use our hashtag no limits. I also want to give a shout out to the incredible team here who helps make this happen every week. Producer Taylor Dunn, our editor, Michelle Bancardo, and the rest of the team, Annie Osakwe, Elizabeth Hecht, Josh Cohan, Steve Jones, Andrew Kelb, David Rind, and all the folks at ABC Radio. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Have a great week. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.